small correction in your bulletin. This morning's text will come from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, but verses 38 through 41 only. We've been traveling with Mark as Mark's perception, Mark's view of Jesus continues to grow just as the disciples' understanding of Jesus grows. Yet those disciples are really not yet aware of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. They, in fact, will not become fully aware until his death and resurrection. Nevertheless, we pray that the Spirit will make us more aware of Christ's presence in our own lives as we hear this word from the ninth chapter of Mark. John the disciple said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. He was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. This is the word of God. I have been warned by several people in the last few days not to bring it up. Yet I know you are here today waiting with bated breath to hear my take on the Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings. Not one to avoid conflict. To a fault, I am told, clearly by my wife, let me sum the whole thing up in one little story. One of you sent it to me. Seems a preacher in a church wanted more than anything else for a chandelier. And so he went to his session and asked if they would support chandelier. No. He went to the women of the church and asked if they would support chandelier. No. He went to his wife. Don't come to me. No. Everywhere he turned, he got no. He was exasperated. He finally invited his secretary into his office and said, how about you? Do you think it's a good idea to get a chandelier? She goes, no. Why not? Give me one good reason. I tell you what, I'll give you three good reasons. The first is that there is no one in this church who knows how to cook it. The second is, I have no idea how to spell it. And the third is that what we need more of in this church is light. You got to work with it. The point is that this last week's, depending on how you see it, train wreck, carefully choreographed and produced for live television, as depressing as it was, reveals the truth about politics. It's not pretty and partisan politics. That the more we think we know, in fact, about the truth, we are, in fact, more confused. 
Have you noticed that when we get really agitated and opinionated, we're usually revealing how much it is we don't know what we're talking about? Across the board, everyone who has asked me my opinion, all but one, I guess 20 people, all but one, what they really wanted was not my opinion, but wanted me to listen to their opinion, what they knew to be true. You know, I'm just as guilty of that, I confess. Doesn't it strike you that we choose to believe what we already think is true and why we believe what we think is true based on our tribal political preference? It breaks down on party lines going in and coming out. Not anybody changed their minds that I could tell after the whole week. This is true for almost everyone, yet this one person. I ran into him yesterday after playing golf. He's ironically a Yale graduate and a Yale Law School graduate. And he asked me, Pastor, can you give me some help on how I'm supposed to understand what last week was about. He did not come to me with his own confirmation bias, but with true curiosity and openness, confessing that he did not know who to believe or what to believe. All he wanted to know was what is a chandelier. So, in the way he came to me in that non-defensive posture, non-aggressive posture, I took the high road. I said to him, you know, the best I can say to this is that I am grateful that we are saved by God's grace and forgiveness. Instinctually, I wanted to say something else. But because of his openness and curiosity, he held me accountable to the high road. The pastor's secretary was right. What we need in this place is more light. But the light we need is never ultimately the kind of light that will unquestioningly determine who is right and who is wrong in political dogfights. As I read this morning's passage, I was struck by how those confused, bumbling, wandering around in the dark, needing more light disciples, who as new members of Jesus' church were no different than we are. Most of the time, they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And like us, they never stopped to form Uh, the question before they already had the opinion. While out doing their disciple thing, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is for everyone, and that everyone is part of God's kingdom, not just the religious folk at Riverside Church, they discovered that someone not from Riverside Church was out doing stuff that was like Jesus in the world. 
And they didn't know who he was. They came to Jesus. Jesus, there's this man out there and he's doing all this kinds of stuff and we don't even know what he believes. I mean, he may not even have a, he may not even have a clergy degree. He's not one of us. He's a, he's a different color, Jesus. He's a Democrat. No, no, he's a Republican. No, he's a fundamentalist. He voted for Trump. No, he loved Hillary. He's a millennial and he has tats all over his body, for God's sake. We're not even sure he's Christian. Since he's not one of us, we tried to stop him. He wouldn't listen. I can only imagine how many times Jesus in his life had to stop and breathe and count to ten before reacting. This was one of them. For after he regained his composure and impatience at his disciples, he thought, of course, this is another teachable moment. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will soon afterwards be able to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Notice what Jesus did not say. What has become for us our tribal rule of membership? They did not say, Jesus did not say, if they are not with us, they are against us. He did not say if they are not with us, they, he is against us. When we decided to invade Iraq and after 9-11, President Bush was making his case against the axis of evil and his moniker to all the world and our allies was this same call. If you are not with us, you are against us. No third way. Either you fight for us or we fight against you. It's either or. And that's always the case when it comes to tribal politics. But did you catch how Jesus said it? The way he said it turned this whole tribal instinct on its head. Those who are not against us are for us. Those who are not against us are for us. It widens the whole playing field immeasurably. It brings all kinds of new team members into the club based simply on the fact that they are not trying to do us in. They're just out there doing good work by bringing a cup of water to someone in the name of Jesus. It's less paranoid, it's less protective, and it's more inclusive. Mark is clear about this all across the board about who this Jesus is and how he wants his disciples to understand it doesn't matter what tribe you're in, which of the 12 tribes of Israel or which is your favorite 12th disciple. And when he always says in the name of Christ, what he means is not this literal saying of Jesus' name, although nothing's wrong with that, what he's saying always in the Bible, what it means by that, in the name of God, in the name of Christ, is that you are doing it in and out of their essence, out of their complete sense of their essence of who they are. So anytime you care for someone the way Jesus 
cared for those. Even if you didn't use Jesus' name, you're doing it in the name of Christ. That's how the Bible understands it. It is to do it in the spirit of someone. Compassion and kindness and forgiveness and inclusion and healing. Cup of water. And whether Jesus' proper name is uttered doesn't matter. Never stop them, Jesus says. They are doing good work. And this means, at least as I see it, that anyone who treats Jesus, excuse me, that anyone who treats others the way that Jesus treated others is doing it in the name of Christ. That Muslims who show compassion and love on those not in their faith are part of the larger tribe of love and kindness that Jesus made real through his own suffering, servanthood, love. Golly, I find this so heartening. This is so encouraging to me that according to these gospel stories, those disciples who Jesus loved wholeheartedly never really understood this Christianity thing until after the fact. And the more they evolved with this tribal confirmation bias thing that they had, the more they began to learn how far away from the truth that is. I don't know if it's true or not, whether we're digressing in terms of tribal politics. It certainly seems uglier than it was. I think a lot of that has to do with what we see on television now used to just be behind the scenes. But what makes this so hard is that this tribal tendency to side with our own clan, as I was saying several weeks ago, two weeks ago, it actually serves a purpose. Tribes and nation states serve a purpose, or at least they did. I think they still do. For during our whole process of evolution, we began to learn that to survive, you have to be in a group, and that you have to struggle to survive, to fight against the saber-toothed, tiger-eat-tiger kind of world, whether as humans or humanoids, we figured out that safety came in numbers. Especially when we became more agrarian, this was true, when people began raiding other people's stuff. We needed tribes for protection and support. Tribal politics grew and is a much, as much a part of our DNA as is religion and always just as complicated. This is why it's so hard. It is a necessary ingredient to being human but when taken to its extreme it's the very thing that keeps us from being human in the first place. I can remember vividly, I think I've told you this story, when my parents decided that the school I was in in Charlotte, Dilworth Elementary, was no longer the right place for me to go because it had been integrated. It was integrated. You can still hear the people in my neighborhood saying it. And since it was integrated, I needed to find another school. So my parents, out of fear, got me enrolled in Myers Park Elementary School, which was the social, elitist, affluent area of Charlotte. And I showed up in fourth grade, 
and I was not a member of the tribe. And at playground on the first day when we were playing kickball, Ed Smith and Ed Jones, it was always those two Eds, were the captains of the teams and they were drawing up teams and Ed Smith picked his first guy and Ed Jones picked his first and then the second. And Ed Jones looked at the guy he'd just picked and said, what about that long, lanky guy, that new guy over there? And, and, and the guy talking to Ed Jones says, you don't want to pick him. He's not one of us. I heard then what true vulgarity and profanity sounded like. He's not one of us. Scientists are learning through sociology and especially through brain scanning that one of the strongest drives that we have is the need to fit in to a group socially. From early on, we look for our social cues. Even little Maddox right now is figuring out how to do that. Two months old. We look for a place to join, to be connected, a club, a tribe, a group of friends. And then they say that the biggest driver of our self-esteem comes from our positive feedback from being in these social settings. But the problem is that our connection to that social setting, the, the need for it, overcomes the truth of it. That our sentiment for it overcomes the reality of what it offers. We expect too much of it. And we're willing to do anything in the world to stay in the group, to stay as one of us. Even if it means to walk the party line, whether we agree with it or not, we must believe the same things, respond the same way, or you're out. Can you remember a time in your life when you did not speak up for someone who was being bullied? Or someone who was being made fun of because of their race? That you did not speak up for fear that you would be exiled from your social setting? You know what I mean. All of us have had this experience. And they always lead to a sense of shame, of facing our own moral character cost, of going along with the crowd in order just to be popular. We do this in religion and politics, sadly enough. Last week I was talking to someone I know to be a little bit of a religious fanatic and he was asking me what I thought of the Pope. And I was effusive. I was saying that it feels to me like he has brought a new light into the world, has blown the spirit of God into this spiritless culture that we continue to face. And that the pushback that he's getting from the insiders, the tribal leaders in the church, is indicative that he's doing the right thing. I don't know, he said. You know he's not really one of us. What do you mean, he's not one of us? He's a Roman Catholic. We tried to stop him, that disciple told Jesus. We tried to stop him because he was not one of us. And Jesus said, let him be 
There are plenty of examples of our right sectarian tribalism in our world today, anger and fear-mongering, nadering, nabobs of negativity, plenty of examples, but I want to say that something new is happening. Even as it seems so bleak, something new is growing. Evangelicals and Protestants and Orthodox and Pentecostals and Catholics, even Catholics, are coming together in brand new ways, sharing the Christ that we have in common. Denominations are becoming less and less important. Evangelicals are coming to liturgical services like this and beginning to work towards social justice. And mainliners are actually able, well, almost able, to claim that we're a little evangelical too. This is so hopeful for what it means to be one of the many body parts, one of us together. When I think about our membership and our commitment to Riverside Church as we truly strive to be a large tent community, a purple church, red and blue together, acting out our lives in the name of Jesus, when I think about it, and all that is needed to make this happen, and how, and how much resistance there is to that very thing in our culture. When I think about Republicans and Democrats and independents and male and female and young and old and white and people of color and straight and gay and organ lovers and organ haters all gathered together in the same place where our, tri- our, our trite little tribal differences don't matter a whit compared to the oneness that we have as the body of Christ, I can only give thanks for all the many ways that God is reaching more in us. Which is exactly why it is so important for us to continue to support this church, this generation, and the next. We have a story to tell this world needs to hear. We have a way of being a body that this world needs to witness. And the only way we can do that, to be this continuous movement of reconciliation, depends on each one of us giving our time, talent, and treasure. When Jesus was brought before Pilate by the chief priests, the religious insiders, They accused him of not being one of us. They said, here is this imposter, Jesus. He's not one of us. Pilate, hearing them say that, sentenced him to death. At the same time Jesus was being interrogated, Simon Peter was standing out by the fire in the nighttime, and a woman noticed him and recognized him as being one of Jesus' disciples and said, you're one of them, you're one of them, and and Simon Peter no, three times. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of them. And not long after they hung Jesus on the cross because he refused to play the rules of the tribal game. And his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Indeed, we know not. Yet his love and forgiveness offer us the most brilliant light that we have in this world, the light that we all need, like every 
plant matter, the light for photosynthesis to grow and move for reconciliation. Each of us, one of us. Let us say together what we believe using the Apostles' Creed found on page 35 in your hymn book. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who by the Holy Ghost, born under Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.